post-truth, I feel like I've heard it so much you can make a drinking game out of it. Like if somebody says it another time, I'm going to punch them. Or take a shot. Or take a shot. Mm -hmm. As cliche as it was, I had to figure out what it meant because I honestly didn't know. Even though I know we are definitely there. In the post-truth. In the post-truth world. Mm. Okay. So what does that mean? What did you think it meant? If somebody asked you on the street, what do you think post-truth means? What would you have said? I would take a shot. <laughs> this is Charles. And this is Rachel. From BNV Radio. This is Design Goggles. This week's show is titled Post-Truth Design and is part one of a three-part series. The truth was something that growing up, honestly, wasn't questioned too much, for better or for worse. What we read, what we learned in school, and what we saw in the news wasn't really challenged on a fundamental level. But clearly things have changed in Seattle, the U.S., and abroad. Design, like any other act of creation, relies on a basic agreement of certain truths. And when concepts like science are called into question, then literally everything else follows. How do designers anticipate the needs of society when people approach every space they encounter with skepticism? How do we engage in a space when the very nature of what we see, hear, and experience may be false? What happens to our daily lives when we don't know where we really are, who we're really talking to, and what we're signing up for when we walk in? To help us answer that question and more, we are joined by Chris Guillaume of Merchant Method, a retail consultant here in Seattle. Chris, thank you so much for making time to sit and chat with us again. Thanks for having me back. We are super excited that you are our first returning guest. Right after we finished your last show, I could not wait to have you back on. So this is not our normal show. We used to go into, oh my gosh, where are you from? What was that like? What was it like moving here? But I was curious about your take on the sort of quote unquote change that has happened in Seattle? Has it stopped changing? Are we like at a place now? What do you think? It has definitely not stopped changing. I think I said it during our last conversation, but I will definitely say it again if I didn't. When there are constraints, some of the best solutions come up. And the constraints in Seattle haven't always been welcomed. With a lack of parking comes a lack of customers, comes poor inventory turn, comes terrible cash flow. And so much is happening in the retail scene now because of it. So change, still on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But is it all new people now or is it just different habits? I think I've read that the numbers have slowed of actual new people coming to the city. Like we're a bigger city now, but it's not like thousands of new people a week anymore. I think it's a change of seasons or chapters in a business. It's not your typical year over year growth or a typical trajectory of where you think you might go. It's pretty surprising, hard U-turns, change in direction, picking up a smart car, very different. <laughs> I know post-truth is like this massive subject. In fact, I know that because I attempted to research it and it was next to impossible. But it hadn't even occurred to me until recently that post-truth was something that could intersect with design. And then I saw a commercial. I saw this commercial, it was like for a Chase Bank. And it's weird because I feel like I never see commercials anymore. It must have been before a YouTube video or something. But like Dennis Quaid randomly struts out wearing this nice suit in like this coffee shop. And he starts talking about the new Chase Bank and everything's a coffee shop. And there's just these random bank people with iPads and they're sitting down in this coffee shop asking to help people with their banking. And I had this visceral, horrified reaction. And I wasn't even sure why at first. The more I thought about it, the more I realized it's possible. This is just all a symptom of no one wanting anything to seem like what it really is. 
and that maybe this thing, this skepticism has affected and colored everything, including residential design and retail design and graphic design, and like no one noticed. I'm just curious as to your take on it, especially the sort of Chase Bank example. At first, before we started recording, I said I had no thoughts on this. I actually have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> when it comes to my own skepticism and when it comes to my enthusiastic embrace of something that seems interesting, ironic, and paradoxical, the difference is the experience or design meant to be in the forefront. Is it meant to be leading a path? Is it meant to be early on any kind of bell curve or is it co-created? And I find that I am highly skeptical when design is from this very early part of a curve. I'm never the person in line to pick up a new piece of technology, sign up for a new software. I'm not a user of as many things as I could be a user of. But I hang tight and I roll with the punches if I'm co-creating. Do you find yourself inherently skeptical when you're just in your own head? I'm skeptical of a lot of things. <laughs> you're skeptical of this question, Charles. I guess it seems like there's this generation that's grown up with too much data, too much input, too much of everything. And the authenticity of everything they see and encounter is in question immediately. And that generation might be more comfortable encountering the post-truth era because they're used to it. Whereas we grew up in an era where these things just weren't challenged and we're new as a generation to skepticism on that scale. But a person who is naturally skeptical might be more comfortable, might be like, well, why didn't y'all just catch up to me earlier? Like, I never believed anything anybody said. So that was why I asked. I interpreted it as you saying you're more skeptical if you're not in a collaborative mindset. Right. Skepticism for me is a behavior associated with whether or not you want to pick something up and adopt it or pick something up and buy it, or pick something up and just engage with it in some kind of way and believe in something. When I think of post-truth, I think of it a little differently. It's emotion over rational thought mm -hmm. and how quickly emotion moves people through experiences, either by saying yes or totally repelling the experience. And it's this third in a Venn diagram of the physical body responding and having to navigate those three things because you could have a feeling, you could have rational thought, and then your lizard brain in the back of your head is doing something very different in your body. And part of us experiencing anything, including design, is all three of that together. So for me, it's more than am I skeptical or not? But maybe skepticism comes in this navigating of these three. Who knows? My hands are up, you guys. You can't <laughs> see me. <laughs> I feel like skepticism is a good thing. It's good to be skeptical, but it's almost like people are being skeptical of things that they shouldn't be skeptical of. It just makes me angry. Why would too much data mean that you decide to stop paying attention to the data? Why would the volume of something mean that you're just going to ignore it now? I think skepticism is always healthy. That's how we, as humans, figure out how to move about and exist and work in the world and in society. But if someone so, said, well, I'm skeptical that lead paint is bad for me, so I'm going to use lead paint. And then I'd be like, well, eat it up and die. Like, <laughs> there is information that you can have, but if you don't need to be right. in the gene pool, fine. I feel like there's a significant difference between skepticism of authenticity and just plain old, like, sure. I am just going to decide emotionally about gravity and what everyone agrees the color white is. It makes me mad that people just are not using their brains for what their brains are supposed to be used for. Mm -hmm. The tricky thing with design I found, especially as I was researching it, was design is inherently about how you feel. 
But in order for you to communicate a feeling to someone, you need a set of agreed upon realities. I distilled maybe one of the reasons the Chase Bank commercial bothered me so much is that to me, they were breaking that agreement that this is a bank. (laughs) (laughs) And I felt like I was angry. And I guess because they were two things I never wanted put together. Experience of a coffee shop and experience of a bank. Spend money, save money. It felt like, yeah, (laughs) it felt like a lie. It felt like a lie based on feeling. We make you feel like you're at a coffee shop. You're not going to feel like you're at a bank. And maybe you won't notice all the things that banks do. That's where, for me, this idea of skepticism versus co-creating is when there's so much convincing that has to happen. Convincing, this is the right thing for you. That's where the skepticism is really helping. I might be skeptical to say experiential creators of Chase Bank or the consultants they brought in to help them figure out how to use their space really survey bankers. Are there other constraints that cause them to think this was a good idea? Space constraints, real estate constraints, city constraints, building code requirement, tenancy restraints that required some use of public space. But I would be more comfortable if I genuinely thought they listened to me and said, you look like you have time to sit. There is like a distorting. It's a distortion because everything that that brand pushes is we are so happy to welcome you, but also while you're in here, let me tell you how many different ways you can bank with us and Mm -hmm. never have to step in here again. Mobile, online, app, over and over and over again. That message was loud and clear for the last however many years. Why in the world would I ever spend time having coffee when I get charged to go chat with the teller? That is less skepticism and more a clash in brand messaging. (laughs) So there's like almost an apocalyptic scenario on the other side of this coin. Let's pretend this is a super successful model and every single bank turns into a coffee shop. Then a person entering a coffee shop maybe begin to look for where they're being sold something or where they're getting taken advantage of. And it has the potential maybe to put a few drops of ink in that well from the other side and destroy an actual third place that people really love and enjoy that has nothing to do with a bank. And where does that end? If this is a slippery slope, what's next down the slope? I think it could be a slippery slope if the presumption is that anyone that steps into any space consumes or experiences the entire space. But that's not how people self-navigate. There are sections of the grocery store I never go to. Mm -hmm. There are parts of Disneyland I care not (laughs) about. There are parts of a bookstore I don't explore because there are sections of genres of books that I don't enjoy reading. I bet if people are embracing the Chase Coffee experience, it's coffee, coffee, coffee on their way to the 42nd floor of that building. And it's convenient. Or banking, banking, banking. But when you're going into a store and you know the sections you don't want to go to, you actively avoid them and they are signed. But if there's no sign, imagine the things you don't want to deal with are blended together with all the things you do. And you now have to do extra labor and extra work to make that association. So it's like you're walking through the store and you're avoiding the center aisles. And then all of a sudden somebody's trying to sell you a mortgage in the produce section. Exactly. You're trying to get an orange. And they're like, have you seen the new phone? And you're just like, I want an orange. I wonder if that isn't what's going to start to happen. That's part of the question for me between convincing and co-creating. No one's forcing any single person inside this fake environment. And if a person doesn't like it, they leave. If they like it, they stay. If they trust in the creative, the experience, and they're coming along for the ride, chances are whatever harebrained idea comes from this tiny group of creators, they might really enjoy. 
what everything we're talking about is pretty self-selective. That's the nice thing about it. So I've been in places, in places here in Seattle, mm -hmm. in very surprising experiences with not a lot of signage that are confusing as all get out, but it's very internally consistent. It's mm -hmm. a place of discovery. You can't tell if it is a showroom or a public space. Can mm -hmm. you buy things? No one's working here. How do I check out? It was Amazon Go before Amazon Go. Mm -hmm. In that space, 200 units of inventory you can actually buy. When they are walking through the door, where do they think they're going? They don't know. They're exploring. Do they know they're exploring? Yeah, they know they're exploring. Right. Okay. Well, so they know something. they're exploring, but they so don't know a... what they're doing. Right. And then the camera pops up and the owner yeah. on her cell phone says, hey, how are you? Just come to the fireplace and look into this camera and yeah. we can have a conversation. It's very disruptive. But because that experience is co-created, because a person can decide do they want to sit down and play a game yeah. or not. But it does seem like there's a social contract there. Even yeah, even if it's a social contract of exploration. Whereas yeah. like in the bank scenario, I don't even know when I was last physically inside of a bank. But if I did have to go to one and my intention was I'm going to a bank and when I got there, they were like, hey, would you like some coffee? I'd be like, yeah, thank you. I would like some coffee. You know, but if I went to a coffee shop and they were like, hey, do you want to do some banking? I'd be like, what? Get, get away from me. Yeah. No. I don't Maybe mind having it. coffee while banking. If I went there to do my banking Maybe and now they're going to give me some coffee, like sure. So I was in a credit union this summer, had my two kids. We were there for what I knew was going to be at least 20 minutes. They were smart. They have things for young children to do, but I would never bring my kids there to play on a rainy day because it doesn't yeah. make sense. But they understand the community members and they listen to their community members. And so it felt really comfortable in there. It didn't feel disingenuine. I've been in places where people have taken my child out of my arms to say, go ahead and shop now. I've got your son. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, you do not, you do not have my son. Yeah, yeah. But in that credit union, for why I was there, for how long I had been there, yes, please do take my kids so I can look at all this paperwork I'm about to sign. Well, that seems more like an amenity, and that makes a lot of sense. That's serving your customers. Well, and you put more trust in this idea that this is a bank. You're trusting them with your money. Maybe you'll trust them with your kid for 10 seconds when you can see them over there anyway, rather than some other complete stranger who... <laughs> yeah just trying to sell you some products. <laughs> it's like there's a disconnect between how much trust you assign to a person based on what they are there to work mm -hmm. with you on. Mm -hmm. I can't remember if this was in the podcast we recorded last time or whether it was just you and me talking. But a little bit about the social, was it a post I wrote? I can't remember anymore. No, about, about the social contract when you walk in any retail space. You're open yeah. to the public. Open to the public. But this host, this person is taking a certain amount of responsibility for you as well. Insurance wise and everything, they're taking mm -hmm. responsibility for your safety for your well-being and everything that's been pulled out is being offered to you and you in turn are agreeing not to treat this place with disrespect or there's that contract every space sort of teaches us by its signage and by its appearance what that social contract is supposed to be if it was reversed the daycare if it was a daycare place and then turned out to be a bank like all of a sudden somebody comes up to you and offers you a drink. And by the way, have you looked at our HELOC options for your like, home? For me, this is where I go back to my Venn diagram of the human experience. Yeah. Like emotion, rational thought, and then the body's physical response that has just been programmed in my body after centuries. However I come to a place, 
however I land in any experience, whether it's a credit union or a bank or a daycare, I set those rings and then I have to adjust based on a changing situation. So sometimes I'm skeptical emotionally, sometimes I'm skeptical rationally, and other times I don't know why, but something about the experience triggers an unrelated occurrence that is making me not breathe well. And it's so complicated when we talk about skepticism because there's so many layers that cause us to bring the shield up. So it would be difficult to say that we can speak on behalf of a lot of people. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't try. But here's the story. I'm in a group of female founders here in Seattle, and someone asked if I would participate in a user test of an app. And I wasn't quite sure what it was for. All I heard was carpooling. And I don't carpool anymore, but I am a huge advocate for carpooling. I did for many, many years. And it's difficult to carpool depending on where you live. So here I am about to go through the app, give my feedback, really excited. And about 15 minutes in, I realize it's a carpool app for your kids. Interesting. But it's not nannies who lift. It's truly Craigslist carpooling your kids. So it's a fancy app that lets you identify where you're coming from, where you're going to, if you want to pick kids up, if you want your kids to be picked up, or if you just want to drive kids around. And there is a process, right? And I had to say, (laughs) I want to carpool no one's kids. I barely want to drive my kids to their own activities. Don't judge me, listeners. I just am not interested in driving my own kids to their own activities. I don't enjoy driving. But I would participate in this app if it was purely nannies on wheels. So my skepticism went up really quickly because where I was in those rings, what I thought totally threw me for a loop. Mm -hmm. Because we have different levels of trust for different types of things. You've decided that you trust your kids with a nanny. That's one thing, right? It's like you've decided you trust this credit union with your money. Do you trust this credit union associate with your child while you do business over there or you know you're at the daycare and you've decided you trust your child with them but do you trust your bank account with them you know so we have all these different levels of trust for different types of things and we start to try to mix them together we get that conflict just because you trust someone or an entity or a location with one thing doesn't mean you trust them with a different thing. And trust isn't always rational. That's the tricky thing. And that's to use the, the Chase Bank example again. They're taking advantage of that. They are creating a scenario to unlock levels of trust or levels of relaxation or whatever. In my opinion, a false social contract. I think of that venture as an easy way to do a food haul a space with more than one tenant, right? Because I'm sure they're not giving you free coffee because that free coffee would be terrible. They're definitely not. They're charging you for coffee and they've brought in coffee experts. That's what those fees are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Actually, ATM fees are about the cost of a cup of coffee now that I think about it. There you go. (laughs) This week, (laughs) discovering the confidential secrets. And for the record, it's not necessarily like the Chase Bank. Like, I don't really care that Chase Bank is doing this. It's all the problems that unlocked in my head when I thought about the possibilities. And if most banks become coffee shops, there are way more coffee shops that are banks than are actual coffee shops because of the, the amount of banks. But if the quantity of banks doesn't go down, like it's not that there are more coffee shop banks, it's just that banks now serve coffee. There's still the no, number well, of coffee shops Their model is the that same. like, it's a coffee shop. 
and you don't see the bank until someone comes to you with an iPad and approaches you. Like there's nothing. That so says you really bank about do this space. accidentally go in there and don't you know that you're going into could. a coffee serving bank. You definitely could. I think the design and also the design of the experience and the design of the brand is where the brand of Chase Bank was developed so so well. It's so difficult for them to break from that. But that's how they created it. When I think of a brand like Starbucks, if Starbucks just wasn't Starbucks and they were Borders, there would be Borders books all over the place mm -hmm. because they listen, they co-create, and they're just like slightly ahead. They are responsive and they're not trying to convince people to do anything beyond what they're already doing just a touch better. That's probably the difference. They're not trying to be super early in this curve of behavior and adoption and the way people like to live their daily lives. But Chase is trying to be very ahead of that. And they haven't earned the permission from their customer base. I don't want to call it the right, but they just haven't earned the permission to grow as a brand beyond a banking brand. That's a really good way to put it, actually. Banana Republic was just fine for me to go from a place with a safari truck in it to a place that serves nine that sells nine to five workwear yeah. that you can take and wear to like happy hour. Yeah. So my key question is this, based on what you were saying, Chris, is because, I mean, I haven't seen this commercial you were talking about. Is it that the bank is developing a subset of their brand that is a coffee shop or is that coffee shop different depending on which location you're at? It's always this Chase Bank or whatever it is, but sometimes it's some other partnership with a different coffee shop every time. Or is it that they're developing a Chase and Coffee? Chase and Coffee. Mm -hmm. And they're designed okay. like coffee shops. So, But then you still are being sold something that you know what it is. This mm -hmm. is the bank coffee, as opposed to being tricked into being in a bank when you thought you were getting coffee. It's definite. The Chase is subtle. If it weren't for Dennis Quaid out in a suit telling me this was a Chase bank, I would have no effing idea. And it could be any downtown coffee shop. Anywhere. If anything, <laughs> if anything, like Dennis Quaid needs to be in every shop being like, are you sure you want to come in? This is actually a bank. <laughs> <laughs> so my advice to Chase Bank is just to clone Dennis Quaid, get him in a blue suit. No, if it were the way you're describing, maybe it wouldn't have bothered me so much. And I don't really care. It seems like you care a lot. <laughs> no, it's, it's the possibilities of what happens if it's a success. And if every label with an unfortunate facing to the public decides they're going to take a completely different context and trick you into trusting them by becoming a daycare place or becoming a coffee shop or a bar. And then all of a sudden, it becomes so ubiquitous that every time you go to a coffee shop or a daycare place or a bar, you are trying furiously to discover if it's actually a bar. But what if it actually is both of those things? Just to play devil's advocate a little bit, what if it's an integrated customer service experience? It's truly both a bank and a coffee shop. It's just that you get great coffee here instead of whatever terrible coffee they were serving out of this thing that was made yeah. you know, hours when ago. Someone searching for authenticity would be lost forever. But is there an authentic pairing of the two? That's a good question. What we're, it's a very good question. I haven't really talked about, we've talked about Chase and we've talked about branding and the ability to change, mm -hmm. but banks earn their respect from their bankers by never changing. We are the most consistent in your life you will ever experience. You can count on us. We will have every single penny plus whatever we owe you. We will never change the rules on you. Being the one thing in your life you can probably count on really is where your money is insofar as you can really count on it and nothing else in the world happens. And you don't want that person to change on you. I mean, have you ever been in a grocery store that's gone through a remodel? 
everyone's outraged. Yeah, yeah. You don't even have to do something it's else aside true. of just true. keeping in a grocery store. But the fact that you told people our fixtures solid, they're never moving. Signs are always there. You can turn off your brain. You're not here to experience. You're here to just throw it in the cart and get out. As soon as you change one thing and become not the reliable place, it's why people get their delicious feels from a farmer's market. They're not getting the delicious feels and all of the experience from the grocery store. Yeah, they just want to get their stuff done. So when I think of even another brand like Nordstrom, full-line department store, one of the only better price point full-line department stores that are doing it really well, the experience is very different and we can feel it more here in Seattle than anywhere else. It is a different place than it was five years ago. But because they have consistently been about serving the customer always and doing exactly what the customer wants, we roll with the punches. No one would stand that, which is why Macy's could never change and JCPenney could never change and Sears could never change because they didn't put the customers first that way. So I think it's part of the trust you establish, the credibility and how people come to know you. Yeah, because I'm thinking of other companies like Verizon. Was it Bell Atlantic one day just decided they were Verizon and no one kind of cared? Everyone was just like, so it's Bell Atlantic, but you're red now instead of blue. Right. <laughs> like, okay, my bill is more now. Okay. Like no one cared and the, the change was seamless because they were a communications company. Or FedEx Kinkos. Oh yeah. No one cared. No one cares. I yeah. still call it Kinkos, you're but like, no one cares. Yeah, exactly. Wait. Interesting. It's the nature. It's kind of what you touched they on. They violated your A trust. bank is like a piece of rock. You're not supposed <laughs> to be a coffee shop. Damn it. Like this is not something that's supposed to change. Interesting. Charles and I had this conversation a few weeks ago around post-truth and retail, particularly around drop ship and a lot of things that happened during Black Friday. And I'm a sucker. I bought something off of an ad on Instagram. Oh, yeah. This hardly is great. ever do. It's great. Hardly ever do. I also shop small business Saturday and museum store Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> but I was a sucker. I was like at nine o'clock at night. I see this thing. I click. I'm super excited. I know exactly what the quality is going to be based on the price. I know it's going to take forever. And that's fine. I was willing to pay that amount and just deal with it if it wasn't very good. And then the next day on a friend's Insta stories was this exact coat that I bought. I bought two of them. She featured both of the coats that were featured by a bunch of these shell retailers that were doing dropship. Now, I believe that it's a company that has a bunch of different URLs, but it could seriously be a company that has dropship contracts that is giving all of these retailers photos to use. The reason why that thing stung and it was frustrating to a lot of people is because when you think about buying goods, you think about physical inventory and dropship kind of takes a bit of that element away. And that's where I tend to get more skeptical when it comes to retail. Is, does this actually exist? Is it on back order? Is it going to get canceled? Why are you still taking orders on it when I'm not going to get it for six confirming weeks? Confirming a number to actually strike a run. Right. And then, oh, whoops, we didn't get enough orders. Sorry, you're actually not getting your thing. And yeah, you didn't get that person a gift, by the way. <laughs> Many years ago, 2002, I worked for a catalog retailer, a giant catalog retailer called Spiegel. I don't know if you're familiar. I know Spiegel. No. So Spiegel is this like age maybe 400-page page catalog. On one side is apparel, and then you flip it over, and it's home on the other side. Ooh. And we probably put out like 50 catalogs a year, all different specialties. And a certain number of those had test catalogs, and they went to a very specific subset of a mailing list, and none of that inventory was ever ordered. We incented people to give us their votes in exchange for a discount. 
but also the risk that their orders would be canceled. Oof. Um, yeah. The original dropship, I guess. Yeah, kind <laughs> of. Yeah, man. Yeah. And I hear about all these retailers that aren't even real. They're just like, I mean, not that that concept is new, right? Like the whole sunglasses example, how like all the sunglasses in the world are basically owned by the same company and made in the same factory and they're not actually different <laughs> sunglasses. <laughs> Like Ray-Ban and the thing at the gas station and Gucci literally come from the same place. But now that model is used everywhere. And there's tons of companies of every different type that you see on Instagram that are actually just all the same company trying out different labels, seeing which one's going to hit with the right demo. Right. Which is also inauthentic in a way. Well, I think part of that circles us back to are we acknowledging that there are real constraints? We're not creating with unlimited resources. And in that specific example, there are only certain manufacturers with those machines with that capability to produce those types of products. It's really expensive to have that. And not a lot of people want to be able to have that capacity and that capability to produce and manufacture at that level. But if we're so deluded to think that everything can be made and manufactured consistently from soup to nuts locally in the U.S., Mm -hmm. we're having to pick and choose. So in a denim example... We may want the organic cotton, but then where does the indigo dye come from? The U.S. doesn't really mass grow the seeds for indigo dye. So you're picking and choosing. And that's the piece of the skepticism is I think maybe we were led to believe that we could go the distance and have all these things that we wanted and consume and have experiences that are totally aligned with our highest self, where the emotions and the rational mind and the body really like to be in this apex but we can't. Everything is going to be everything. (laughs) (laughs) That starts just hurt my brain a little bit. If everything is just going to be everything. There is the other side of the coin, I suppose. It could be a good thing. For instance, there's a very famous restaurateur here in Seattle and he has many different restaurants, but in every single restaurant, all the kitchen staff wear the same t-shirt. He doesn't mind and you don't mind that they're all of the same person because it's a positive marker and it's part of the social contract that you're looking forward to. You know that this is a different version of this brand and he's very upfront about it and it contributes to the success versus the opposite. So maybe it's just when something is being hidden from us. Like you, like is Dropship, I don't know Dropship very well. Are they being upfront about what you are getting or maybe not getting? I think some are upfront and some aren't. I think like with anything, right? It's like subcontractors, like, oh, I will take care of all these things. And then I've got like a special team behind me. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Private label, white label. There are brands that are transparent and that's the rise of transparent pricing and transparent branding and transparent manufacturing. If anything can be white labeled, do brands exist anymore? Yeah. Well, I How think do you know? The thing that's different is, so are you familiar with brand lists? Uh-uh. It's where everything's $3 and you can get like spaghetti sauce and cashew nuts and gummy bears <laughs> and gluten-free lotion. Things are about $3. They're a brand, but everything is private label or white labeled. They're not saying we're unbranded they're definitely a brand right but their brand is about listening to what the customers want about being really transparent about what the ingredients are how to make things they're co-creating the assortment along with the people that don't want to spend for the label and don't want to spend for the marketing Mm -hmm. so it's direct to consumer so i don't think there's a lack of brand because brands are not like what you and I say. It's like what we tell each other after the microphones are off about our experience. It's truly oh, if you what a only brand knew is. what if we said when the microphones were off. Well, but fashion brands, for instance. Kenneth Cole is a good example. I'm just picking on companies I know can take it today. Um, <laughs> I actually used to love Kenneth Cole. I used to buy their stuff all the time. And then when I discovered half the stuff I got, I wondered why the, the quality was varying so badly. And I realized literally three quarters of what I was buying wasn't Kenneth Cole. 
they had just sold their label to some other manufacturer, put their label on it. For me, the brand ceased to exist because I couldn't trust it anymore. Didn't know what quality I was going to get. There was no cohesion to the brand besides an aesthetic, sort of. So I stopped buying that brand. They're really successful because of that model. But for me, they broke that contract that I was actually getting something Kenneth Cole. On the opposite end of that spectrum, all the brands I'm fans of today are coming out. Fry Boots, I've become a big fan of that brand, even though some of that stuff is made in China, some of it's made in Mexico, some of it's made in the United States, but I know exactly where each one is. And they're really upfront about it and honest, and I know what I'm getting every single time. They're not white labeling their work anywhere. Right, but you were still getting Kenneth Cole when they stole that other stuff. It's just that they had decided that what Kenneth Cole was is no longer this one thing. It's all these things, and some of them are not as good. Which to some customers clearly meant that their brand was no longer relevant for them. I mean, they did that to themselves. They they made that choice, and they weren't saying that this is Kenneth Cole factory. But I had to spend my money to figure to it out. figure right. it out. So that's no why it killed it for was, you. In a way that is taking advantage of someone. So in it's that trust thing again. Yeah. You trust Fry because they're telling you these are the made in USA ones. That's true. That's 100% true. The way that you shop is a very specific set of shopping filters. And then other people have other sets of shopping filters yeah. that oh, are yeah. based on price. Yeah. yeah. And other... Oh. A hundred percent. And I'm not saying white labeling is wrong. I'm just wondering if the rule of the land will just be white labeling because people may not care. We might be the last ones to actually care. To me, because I think brand is about what people actually say to each other, not what companies say to customers. Anytime I'm exposed to a new brand, they're all white labeled to me. I don't know who they are. They have not established my trust. So many people can like them. And I don't care about them yet until our friend actually tells me something or they've earned my attention in some way. Yeah. That is the real meaning of brand. I don't care what they say. I don't care how beautiful the website is. What about VW? I'm excited that they're coming out with an electric van. No, no, no. When when the the massive scandal, the massive emission scandal where they lied about the emissions performance of their vehicles and they've been lying to their customers for 10 years, was the brand about what they were telling their customers or about the actual quality of their vehicles? I'm guessing that the ones that are really upset are upset with a higher purpose and the ones that aren't don't have that compass. It's why I only take Lyft rides. Some people also ride Uber, but I am guided by my own other feelings. Right. Right. So I think it's because I'm talking about it with friends and I'm not reading emails from either of those companies. I'm not consuming any of their marketing. It's just kind of what I read and what I discussed. You buy, you, did you make that choice when you discovered how Uber was positioning itself and treating its employees and treating its drivers? Well, it brought up a conversation. Yeah. So I'm not devoid. I'm not in yeah, a, yeah. under a rock. But yeah. Jamie and I, yeah. my husband and I had our phones and we had our apps and we had a 45 minute conversation. Yeah. Yeah. We went online. We went to where we trusted. Because, we yeah, did all that too. And it's funny. It's really been tickling me lately because Uber realized what they did with that and all these people like us just were like nope we're done so now their commercials are hilarious because they are really embracing the self-deprecation well i don't know if they're still doing it but for a while their little tagline was something along the lines of say did it again yeah (laughs) yeah no it was it was something like we're going a new direction forward You know, and I appreciate that kind of humor. Mm -hmm. I still haven't come back to them yet, but that is a good way.
way to start to get me to pay attention to you and give you a second chance again is right. to be like, yeah, we did some bad things. Yeah. Right. We know. <laughs> right. So that activates my humor. That activates my emotion. But my rational thought knows that in large organizations, behavior is institutionalized. So it takes a long time for large organizations to move and shift. I don't have physical feelings. I mean, a car is driving me. That driver is probably more comfortable than I am driving. Great. But, you know, I'll still laugh. I can still appreciate it. <laughs> Even if it doesn't bring me back, I still appreciate yep. it. <laughs> so to bring it, bring it back to design, I'm going to ask sort of a, a segue question. Do you believe that you can lie with design? Do you believe design can be dishonest? Yes. Ooh, tell Just us more. Tell us. No, because you can yeah. design whatever you want. You can be an evil mastermind. Design does not have its own ethics or morals. The people that use design as a tool to do something have to make those choices themselves. What's an example of lying with design? Because I think a ubiquitous one might be wood veneer. Just everywhere. Yeah. I mean, wood veneer is everywhere and it's essentially a lie. We all do it because very few people can afford solid wood on it things, and it's potentially wasteful. Maybe sometimes that's a white lie. Absolutely. I No, I think it definitely is. Maybe all design is actually shades of gray of misinformation. I mean, and propaganda in general, too. And it may not always be misinformation. It could yeah. be constraints, right? And then cons yeah. where constraints meets integrity. I think it's both. We talk about this pet peeve of mine all the time here in the office. A very popular thing in the Pacific Northwest aesthetically is to have like marine grade plywood as a finish, which a lot of people like. And I, for some reason, can't stand it, which is ironic because it's like the most honest thing you could do, right? Like you're not painting it, you're not putting stone on it, you're not putting glass on it, you're not putting wood veneer on it. It's literally as honest as it could be. But I always just feel like it's not finished and that's why it bugs me. <laughs> but that's honesty through design. It's like, no, we built this out of plywood and it's plywood. Yeah, but you could be like, we built this out of plywood and then we painted it. <laughs> right. Honestly. Yes. Honestly, yes. we painted it. Yeah. <laughs> That's to me like the innocent side of the spectrum. And then the other side of the spectrum is you're having an experience you're not really having. People are aware that wood veneer exists and then they're surprised when it's solid wood. But there are things that people aren't aware of. And then there's like intentionally trying to make sure people aren't aware. I see that when it comes to designing online shops. So there are many products where you can go to that product's website and it has farmed only the five-star reviews. But then when you look elsewhere, you get yeah. more honest reviews. But the branded website nearly always retails it for cheaper. Yeah. Hotels have gotten into that too. Trying to get back at all the hotel collection websites where it's mm -hmm. like, if you go to hotel's actual website, it's actually cheaper than what's on hotels.com. That works on airlines a lot of the time yeah. too. Yeah. Uh-huh. I've heard a lot actually from friends in the, the tech world about lying with UX design which is much more sinister because you cannot see it. This person I know was asked in the company to shunt the user to only the information that they wanted the user to have rather than the information they thought they were clicking on and make it incredibly hard to get to the information they wanted. Instead, you only get the information that we want you to see. So that's not and lying, though. It definitely is. It would be as if you were going into a specialty retail furniture store versus an Ikea. They do have some escape routes and they yep. have some places where yep. you can <laughs> jump Skip through. Skip ahead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but basically you are going through 
arrow by arrow, room by room, exactly where they want you to go. No, they're not lying. I mean, they're not lying. They are just taking you on the journey that they want you to Mm -hmm. be on. Imagine if you clicked on a button in Photoshop, for instance, that was a filter. And instead, it saved and closed your file. <laughs> that would make you super angry, right? Well, yeah, is the but so because what the button said say? one thing and did another. But that's not good UX. That would be bad UX. Unless there no. was a monetary gain for you to expose said person to certain information. So if a person was paying you, for instance, to I want this information in front of people. If somebody comes away from your experience and feels tricked or that they were lied to or any of those things, then you don't have a good user experience. I agree. Even if whatever this company was is saying, let's actively deceive the user. If I went on one of the shortcuts that was supposed to get me closer and it wasn't a shortcut, then yes, then I would get mad. And then I would be mad about it and I would be a disgruntled customer and, and blah, blah, blah. But no company wants to create disgruntled customers, right? So they might have a certain motive that they actually are trying to give you a little more information or show you a couple more products or whatever they're doing. But they have to be able to do that without making you mad or they have failed. Some companies actually do. Want make you mad? Yes. I, in fact, I know one for sure. I could mention they're a massive company. They could take it, but I won't. They don't because it costs them money to if you not engage with them. To make them. you happy? Yes. They would rather you not be happy and lose the market share because the market share they could lose costs them less than actually assisting you with your problems. Is this Comcast? <laughs> yeah, this is Comcast. This podcast will never be on a Comcast affiliate. They literally made a decision that they internet. designed Ooh. their customer service in a way that would make sure you were so frustrated you would quit because they did the calculations on what it would cost to actually serve their customers. And it cost them more than making them angry and losing customers. Okay, but so then this is not a debate <laughs> yeah, about what acquisition is- Acquisition cost is less than service cost, yeah. But then this is not a debate about what is good UX. That was who was the real client making of that. The real money. client was not the customer. Right. The real client, the, the UX was serving a, a different master. It was yes. bad UX for the customer. Yes, good UX for their bottom line. And that's yeah. this- are they in this forefront piece? Mm-hmm. Are they not carrying their leading through ROI or leading through net margin? Yeah. Or, you know, Gemari or versus something else like co-creating. So there's an ethical quandary in there somewhere. And I guess I am wondering how it What do you mean in there somewhere? It's very right in the forefront what the quandary is, right? Well, it's still like, capitalism, right? So you have to serve your shareholders. So your shareholders aren't your public and they aren't your customers. And they're the number one priority for a corporation which sucks and that's a system we're in, but they're actually doing right by their shareholders, which is messed up by essentially giving worse service (laughs) and and cutting customers. So it's like, to them, it's not an ethical quandary. But if you care about human beings and the experience they have, it is. And so in a way, that deception is making the statement that I care more about my shareholders than I do about my customers. And in the case of a small business that relies, and I'm guessing a whole lot more on the at least appearance of caring about their customers, I would worry about that if that was a bargain they started to think about making. I mean, so the fact that I guessed this company out of a gajillion companies based on the only thing that you described, <laughs> I mean, they have amazing brand presence and identity. Yeah. That's all it took. You're like, who's the worst person? <laughs> like, yeah, they do. I mean, so I guess they're great for their shareholders. I mean, hey. They are. They, they're building many buildings in there central Philadelphia with all that money. They are. When it comes to design, is there a next step? Because I think if yeah. there is a next step, 
it's easier to understand why these filters keep happening, mm -hmm. forcing anyone into a thing that they might not know they're stepping into because you have to get them to the next step. I think that's why that's happening. And maybe future generations will not care. Like a phone is everything all at once. And maybe everything being everything is what they will want. Can everyone raise their hand, even if you're in your car, raise one hand. <laughs> if you have that email address that you give out anytime you're asked for an email address. You mean like an email address that you give out? For everything. Please send my e-receipts here. Yes, I want to start. Most people used to have separates and I did, but then I just can't keep track of passwords anymore. And password manager. Everybody get a password manager. But also use filters. You don't need more than one email address. That's exactly what I do as well. That's what I do. I just have filters and rules set up and it goes to one address, different places. I used to do that though. I used to do that all the time. Part of that might be some of these conveniences bring down our level of skepticism. Oh yeah. Of like a lot of the convenience of walking out, the convenience of returning something, the convenience of quitting or stopping service. Yeah. We might be more open in a skeptical experience than we could have been 10 years ago because you can walk away. There was a really good um, Patriot Act. Do you watch that on Netflix? Yeah. That's Minaj. That's not Minaj. He expounds and illustrates all the reasons why Amazon arguably is really unscrupulous. And then every step of the way is like, but I am still ordering everything from Amazon because it's so convenient. I can't stand it. It's so convenient. Every single time he's just like, here's a terrible thing about Amazon. I am still ordering from Amazon. That's how much convenience matters to me. And then if the convenience needle just goes too much to one side, <laughs> just like all of our ethics just out the window. And I've never really encountered a person who doesn't have that line at some point. I don't know. I like a little hoop jumping. As someone who might have to jump through a hoop and as someone who's asks customers or people of experiences to jump through hoops with me because it brings us to a little bit more than a social contract. It says, I'm putting my guard down a little bit. I'm yeah. being a little more human for you. I'm being a little more vulnerable because I've jumped through some kind of hoop to be here. I'm thinking more and more about an airport the more I think about this argument in my brain. Now the contract you make at the airport is you like... You thought you were flying to Paris. Turns out... <laughs> You're but signing a mortgage. You No, but it turns out maybe you're not leaving for six hours because they make you a deal for $350. You can fly later because we're kicking you off the this plane. That's what I'm saying. Like We are now open to all sorts of possibilities when we go to the airport. I might buy something at a store, sit in a lounge and be sold something. I might not even get on the flight that I paid for. It's like an airport is everything. And now maybe a coffee shop is the airport or that's the future of the coffee shop. Oh, it's $8 for your coffee, but if we bump you to the end of the line and serve all these people first, maybe we'll give you a credit. Oh, that is where it's going. Mobile <laughs> yeah. orders? Yeah. Even when they offer you that credit, you have to do extra labor. You're ready to travel. Maybe you don't have to be home for a meeting or home at a specific time to pick up your kids and you actually have the flexibility. You all of a sudden have to sit there and do that labor when they make that announcement. Oh my God, it's like extra stress. You don't get a choice in that. They offer you that money and you're like doing that value judgment. And you're like, oh my God, is it worth $350 for me to like miss my flight six hours? What can I do in the airport? And you're stressing about it. You do not get a choice. They make that announcement. They can unring that bell. And that's the kind of stress. You could make the choice to not think about it. You can. Well, well, yeah, you're weighing your opportunities. Sure. Yeah. But you don't have to. You could just be like, yeah. I'm getting on this plane. I'm the reason all these other people are going to have to make this choice because I'm not giving up my seat. You do have some control over the choices that you deliberate about or not. Yeah, but you have to hear it. Oh, well, your headphones are on, I suppose. <laughs> That's yeah. always an option. Yeah. Just yeah. screw it. I'm not, I'm not even... <laughs>
la 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 la. That's what it's gonna be. The future in the coffee shop. It's gonna be like. I want a non-fat latte. La 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 la. <laughs> like walk away with your headphones pressed into your ears. They'd be like, wait, our mortgage slash car slash cheaper coffee we want to offer you. And it's just, that to me is like another level of idiocracy. You've purchased 10 coffees. That means you get a free $79 flight to Las Vegas. Free $79. That would be confusing. I'd be like, free? Okay, stop there though. Stop at that point. $79. That's what it costs to check your bag. The flight's free. <laughs> it's like loyalty cards it's like loyalty cards yeah yes for sure and again maybe we'll be the last generation to want something different maybe growing up with a smartphone and normalizing to that that won't matter to anybody anymore they'll expect everything to be everything oh it'll be so different by the time we're plus 20 it's years it's funny a diner hasn't changed since, really fundamentally since well, but that's only because those invented. are catering to people that have major nostalgic fixes see they're what do you want to be in your future better self? Or your better self was back here. And so we're trying to be nostalgic. Yeah. But teenagers still need cheap burgers and fries. Well, they can and get they those in any number of places. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's also true. A coffee true. shop slash burger joint. I right. Mean, <laughs> slash <laughs> slash, slash bookstore slash airport slash bank slash coffee shop slash boot showroom. <laughs> Apparently, that's where we're headed. Slash movie theater. <laughs> oh, man. Ugh. I don't know why it bothered me so much, <laughs> but it still does. Like and every time I see it, I'm just like, oh God, my head. So does it not bother you on any level? Maybe I'm the only person in the world. It's totally possible. Well, I mean, I don't know if I can really properly answer the particular question without seeing the ad that you saw. Because I watch love it. watching ads and analyzing Let's them. Let's watch it. All the Let's time. Let's watch it. Okay, we're going we're gonna to pause right here and we're going to play the ad. I can't really reproduce it because that would be illegal. So everybody, we have a surprise for you. <laughs> During our break, we took a moment to look up the commercial that Charles has been talking about this entire time. Turns out, our apologies. It was neither Dennis Quaid nor Chase Bank. <laughs> <laughs> it turned out that it was Capital One and a guy in the same suit that Dennis Quaid wears in an insurance commercial. Mm -hmm. So I pose that while this is definitely my fault, it is also their fault <laughs> for not making ads memorable enough to actually know who was in what commercial and what company they were for. <laughs> and that's that's what I'm putting out there into the world. Or insurance definitely, wait, no, who did win? Because we spent all this time talking about all these other brands. Yeah, who you're won? right. No, Chase won. Insurance lost. They made an ad. Chase was Are not involved in this at all. They are an innocent bystander. It's right. Capital bystander. One oh and Insurance. <laughs> so sorry, Chase Bank, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you've probably no, done something they've wrong. they've benefited but... from this. They are the winner. <laughs> yeah. They didn't even make an ad. And we spent However, this entire time talking about What is it in my subconscious them? in their previous ads that made me think it was them? I wonder. But imagine that now. Imagine, oh my God, I went to this amazing restaurant last night. The risotto was incredible. I'm like, oh yeah, that's a Chase Bank. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah, that's a Chase Bank. The restaurant with that brand new chef that everybody's talking about, totally a Chase Bank. But was the risotto terrible? I mean, Maybe. what if it was the best risotto you've ever right. had? Maybe. But imagine if like that, that's now the social contract you need to make. If we bumped your risotto and you got it later and you got a hundred dollar credit. Are you just like really afraid that you can't like see through things? Like, are you just like afraid of being tricked? No, no, and not at all. And in fact, like I 
sometimes really enjoy the challenge of navigating all these things. From a design perspective, I just think authenticity has been a conversation we've been having for a long time. It jeopardizes authenticity in general. And the post-truth era jeopardizes authenticity at a basic level. If no one is willing to assume anything is real, the amount you'd have to do to prove it could ruin, potentially ruin all experiences. I'm not sure if I'm willing to accept that post-truth is real. (laughs) I'm skeptical about post-truth. Maybe it's that I don't want to. I see it everywhere and it just makes me super mad, right? So maybe I'm just trying to hold on to whatever thread of optimistic faith I can think of to think that we are not going to destroy everything by accepting it as a foregone conclusion. A couple things that shocked me was when I first looked for post-truth books to do research, I found that the first one was published in 2004. Oh, so long ago. Secondly, (laughs) I found an entry by Carl Sagan. In one of his books when he was in his prime, talking about his prediction that people would eventually discard science and go back to worshiping pyramids and clutching crystals and that that would be the future and that science would eventually fall out of favor. And I was like, God, he was really smart, too. (laughs) And I was like, oh, no. And so all of a sudden, because I was skeptical at first, too, and I didn't even know if I wanted to do this series at first. Doesn't really exist. Doesn't really intersect with design. And I was skeptical myself. And then when I found that Sagan thing, I was like, oh, no, this is totally real. This is totally a thing. And this is totally the beginning of that pendulum swinging and that we've all thought about progress as this linear thing. And it's so not. It's a circle. And it always has been. And if you go back into poli sci and history, you'll see that, like, literally science becomes into favor and then out of favor. Yeah, I mean, we know all that, right? Dark Ages, all of that. Sure. Maybe I'm just trying to cling to stave off the next Dark Age as much as we possibly can, Mm -hmm. because we will lose more this time than that time because we aren't writing things in stone so when we lose it all it's not like archaeologists will find it later (laughs) (laughs) it'll be like it never existed that's possible that's very possible Damn, that's that's. So on that note, that's yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah, a little deep. Feel deep, good now. <laughs> deep cut for you. <laughs> God, I don't even know how to even if this conversation is one that can be ended. So maybe I'm glad this is a three part series. But do you have any closing thoughts, Chris, about post truth design, retail design, about the blending and misdirection? That's becoming part of it, for better or for worse. I'm not trying to put a positive or negative spin on that. Misdirection can be a wonderful thing, but it can also clearly be a negative thing. Some of the things that stand out to me are these like ideas in no order and maybe not even related to each other mm-hmm. is discovery, true, genuine discovery mm-hmm. versus having to be convinced at what point in time the discovery and feeling like you need to be convinced happens. I think time is a piece of this. Um, The balance of emotion, rational thought, and then physical response to things stick out to me. And then risk is this other piece, right? You know, we were talking about skepticism and this ability just to like let it go, walk away. But I think there's a certain amount of discombobulation we're willing to undergo if it's not super risky for us. And risk isn't something that we've talked about. No, which is kind of crazy, right? And we haven't talked about identity. 
where our identity comes into play when it comes to post-traumatic design. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I honestly, I could talk about this for a while. So I'm glad I have two more shows, but um, we are definitely more than out of time. But thank you very much for coming back on, Chris. This is incredible and illuminating. This was fun. So thank you, Chris, and thank you very much for listening. Check out Design Goggles podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also check out our blog on boardandvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop by Board and Vellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks.